Y'all, it's a boob. It's a boob. I mean, boobs are amazing. Kiss Tyler Hagelin. And you're paying me for this? I'll do this for free. Thank you so much. Aquafina, for when you need to nurse your brother back to health because he's nearly killed himself to revive you from this trying to score points with Lydia. She's like, oh, look at me. I'm so compassionate. I'm helping these two boys who fist each other into a giant alpha. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Calissa Mollis, and I'm joined by Kate Colvin and Will Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season three, episode 12, Lunar Lips the finale of season 3A. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, alpha and beta. The beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at R2BH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, The Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews in a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at R2BH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. This week's episode is titled Lunar Ellipse, and it was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. In the episode, Scott, Allison, and Styles emerge from the ritual with knowledge of where the Nematon is located. Jennifer attacks the Alpha Pack. Cora, Lydia, and Deaton try to save the twins. Scott and Derek form unlikely alliances to try and save Jennifer's last three sacrifices. Isaac, Allison, and Styles find the root cellar where Chris, Melissa, and Stalinsky are being held, but escaping the cellar isn't so easy. Scott's destiny comes to fruition. Allison proposes a new Argent hunting code. Peter makes a surprising power play. Our favorite quote for this episode is an exchange between Raphael McCall and Isaac Leahy. Raphael says, I'm not going to lie. I'm more than a little disturbed, not only by the number of missing parents, but the fact that it's Styles' father, your father, and your mother. The last two parts indicating Allison and Scott, respectively. Isaac raises his hand and says, mine are both dead. And then Raphael says, save the cliched teenage apathy for your high school teachers. We have two honorable mentions, both involving Derek. Good job, Derek. You don't normally end up in this section because you don't have enough one-liners. Oh. <laughs> but this week he was on point. Derek says, you want me to run? Peter says, no, I want you to stay and get slaughtered by an alpha with a psychotic foot fetish, perfecting the sarcasm in every single episode. Everyone. And the last honorable mention is just Derek, and it's not really quippy. I just like it. <laughs> Derek says, like my mother used to say, I'm a predator. I don't have to be a killer. Good job, Talia. Always with the good advice. Yeah. The episode begins with Scott, Allison, and Styles waking up in the tubs of ice water. They look around and find themselves not in Deaton's clinic, but in a mysterious all-white room. And all their kidneys are missing. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the sexiest all three of them have looked? I think so. My God, do Posey's pecs look good? Uh, it's pretty f- sexy. 
I wonder how long it took to film the scene with them having to be like completely soaked through. From the script, the room is described as a large, empty, industrial white room, a room that might have once housed dozens of cubicles, but is now devoid of any life. And I thought this was interesting considering we get an episode entitled Devoid in season 3B. Yeah. In the center of the room, seemingly coming up from under the white floor, is a massive tree stump, the nematon. I am obsessed with this set. I love it. Yeah, it's great. This is over at 8500 Balboa. For this room, they're always shooting in one direction. The editing just makes it look like we're shooting back and forth reverse shots, which makes it seem like the room has no exits. So what you don't see is that if they turn the camera around 180 degrees, there would be giant sliding doors in the shot. These doors led to another part of the warehouse where they stored Teslas. Movie magic, folks. That's really cool. And Teen Wolf uses a similar trick for the lacrosse games. Yep, it's called the French turnaround, where you just turn people around and it looks like you're shooting in different directions when you're actually not. Nice work, France. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing the rings on the stump, Scott thinks of the tattoo he was mysteriously inspired to get on his arm. He remembers explaining it to Derek and saying he wasn't sure what it was. Y'all, it's a boob. It's a boob. <laughs> I mean, boobs are amazing. I think it's weird that the tree having rings made Scott think of his tattoo at all. Like, trees have rings, yeah, but they don't even look like Scott's tattoo. Yeah, it might have been a more logical connection if there had been two strange dark rings on the tree instead of a whole bunch of normal tree rings. Yeah, I thought there might be something in the script that made this connection stronger, but there wasn't. Scott puts his hand on the stump and flashes back to the night when he was bitten, and we learn that the nematon was right next to where Peter attacked Scott. I think it's lost the time, and Dino does an amazing job with this sequence. The score in this sequence is phenomenal, but I will once again try and find the version of this scene that's set to In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. And it was amazing. I think Blaine Williams, our head of editorial, might have it. I hope that one day you can find God, this me too. typical cut. Me too. Nicknamed Bigfoot. <laughs> Styles has a similar flashback to his experiences that night. I love how they do this bit, especially with how the flashlight from back then flashes its light over the face of present Styles. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Dino, you are crushing it, sir. In the script, there was more dialogue from the pilot used for Styles' flashback. They condensed it a bit for the aired version. That makes sense. Yeah. In a scene we haven't seen before, Allison flashes back to riding in the car with her mother on a rainy night, with Allison talking about how strange it is when her father leaves the house at odd hours with duffel bags full of automatic weapons. Strange even for a federally licensed arms dealer. And I'm a fashion consultant. Or something. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if I was Allison, I would think that he was like into drug, like drug trade or something. Something. Mm. Or like selling the weapons illegally. It just seems like, I don't think that if you were on the up and up, you would have to leave it all hours. No. Yeah. With a duffel bag full of automatic <laughs> weapons? No. Right. No, that doesn't Absolutely seem not. Of course, Victoria brushes off Allison's concerns, but their conversation is interrupted when Victoria narrowly avoids running over Scott, who stumbled into the street in the wake of Peter's attack. Turns out it was the same night. Allison tries to get Victoria to stop. I believe that Victoria would not stop after nearly hitting a teenage boy with her car. I'm a fashion consultant, not a doctor. And then the very next night, Allison hits a dog, also in the rain, like mother, like daughter, I guess. Not a good family of drivers. 
Working the Argents into this particular night makes it feel like the crazy quilt of destiny from Community. Yes. And I love it. By the time Allison convinces Victoria to turn around and head back toward the boy they almost struck, they find only an inhaler. They did a really good job with Allison's flashback here. Yeah, they did. Armed with their new knowledge about the location of the Nematon, the three wake up back in Dean's clinic, only to learn they've been out for 16 hours and the full moon rises in less than four. What the f***? Okay, were Dean, Lydia, and Isaac just standing there for 16 hours? Why did they leave them in there? It's so crazy that there isn't any real discussion about that. Yeah, it feels really wrong. But I still like, I want to know, like, did they play cards while they were waiting, order in some food, get a pizza, share feelings? Yeah, I'm sure they dipped their hands in there and felt their pulses. Right. In the script, the main titles were actually placed here instead of after Allison jolts out of her flashback. And instead of it, Allison jolting out and then it cutting to the main titles, it has her flashback ends and it shows like the three of them. It says like submerged in the water with just like their heads barely sticking out, like just enough to breathe. And then Mm. they all like jolt awake. Like crocodiles. I was kind of thinking about how they have those like sensory deprivation. Yes. Thank you. Like on fringe. All right, yeah, there's that's our, there's our fringe reference was, for the episode. That's absolutely what I was thinking of. And Stranger Things. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. If you want to choose something more popular, that's fine. Yeah, I will. Thank you. Meanwhile, Cora, now cured, helps a severely drained Derek. Aquafina, for when you need to nurse your brother back to health because he's nearly killed himself to revive you from mistletoe poisoning. What a concise tagline. That water is magic. Peter says he hopes what Derek did doesn't end up being for nothing. Ugh, shut up, Peter. Such a dick. Give him like two happy seconds. (laughs) Peter says that it's likely Kali will come kill him before the eclipse. Still? I mean, there's so much going on. Does she really still want to mess with that? She knows Julia's alive and after her. Plus, she now knows from Morel that Deucalion is the one who really killed Ennis. And it's clearly going after Derek isn't to recruit him anymore because Deucalion has definitely moved on from that. So why? She's like, I made a promise and I'm going to keep it. Yeah, that's my thing. Except for that one really important time when I promised to kill someone and then didn't. But every other time, it is my thing. I mean, she knows Jennifer's after her and she knows she'll be powerless once the eclipse starts. Seems like she should be hiding It's not like they can't figure out what her plan is at this point. Even though Jennifer hasn't monologued to the Alpha Pack about it, surely they know that werewolves lose their powers during an eclipse. It's not a secret. And by the way, why is Jennifer waiting to kill the parents besides the fact that they're important characters? It's not like you only get the powers for a certain amount of time. She seems to have kept the power she subsumed from all the previous sacrifices. Right. Nor is there any indication that the sacrifices are on a set timeline, as in, You have to wait a certain amount of time in between sets. That's not something we've established. Yeah, there's no explanation for why she's waiting. Back at the clinic, the group tries to decide on their next move. Scott wants to go back to Deucalion, believing he can't beat Jennifer without Deucalion's help. Though Allison, Isaac, and Stiles disagree with that assessment, with Isaac saying they probably shouldn't trust the guy who calls himself Death Destroyer of Worlds. Okay, but did Derek recount that nickname to him? Yeah, yeah, everyone talked about it off camera. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Dean says that some situations require you to align yourself with those who would otherwise be your enemy. Like me. I mean, other people. <laughs> Deaton suggests they use Deucalion to lure Jennifer out. 
This scene is longer in the script. Deaton says, I wouldn't trust him, no, but you could certainly use him to your advantage. Scott replies, if we find our parents and Jennifer's there waiting for us, no one's getting out alive. We need help, Lydia says. What if we could distract her? Scott says, she wants Decalion. Nothing is going to distract her from that, Deaton says. Then build a plan that involves him. Deucalion may be an enemy, but he can also be the bait. Deaton approaches Scott, lowering his voice. He says, part of being a leader is trusting the ones who follow you to do their part. Scott looks to his friends, each of them ready to risk their lives. Finally, he nods in agreement and says, okay, then we better come up with a really good plan really fast. Hmm. It's a lot to cut. I just assumed they ran out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Ethan arrives and asks for their help in stopping Kali from killing Derek. At the same time, as Chris, Stalinsky, and Melissa wait for Jennifer to come back and sacrifice them, the root cellar begins to get ravaged by a windstorm. So I thought the description was interesting here in the script. When Melissa says the whole, like, anybody else feeling an unbearable itch on the tip of their nose, Stalinsky says, I am now. And it says, they smile, a moment of levity. Argent notices something between them, but the atmosphere turns serious again. So I feel like this is a suggestion, perhaps, of a flirtation between Stalinsky and Melissa. Yeah, it, that does. I mean, why else write that if you're if you're yeah. laying track? It doesn't really come across in the episode, though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe they decide to cut that reaction from him. Lydia accompanies Ethan in going to warn Derek. Peter and Cora try to convince Derek to run. Derek isn't sure until Peter asks Lydia what she can sense, and Lydia says she feels like she's standing in a graveyard. Oh, that's just the decor. Oh, I also feel like I hate Peter. A lot. Scott, Isaac, and Allison go to the Argent's apartment to get something of Chris's that Scott and Isaac can use to catch a scent. Why do they need to use scents when the entire point of going under was to find out where the nematon is? Because... Styles had figured out that whatever the nematon is, that must be where their parents are being kept. If it was just a matter of tracking scents through the woods, why couldn't they have done that in the first place? Yeah, they could have skipped that 16-hour ice bath. Yeah, I don't know. The plan to find something to track Chris gets derailed when the trio finds Raphael and two other officers there, sitting with an array of Chris's weapons. Do they have a warrant for this? And have they just been waiting there for the moment that Scott, Isaac, and or Allison come in? Like, instead of waiting at Melissa and Scott's house in the hope that his missing wife shows up there, he's at the Argent's. And what would the probable cause have been? Argent's name of the hospital? Nope, that's not probable cause. That's graffiti. Try again. I'll check the sheriff's department for this name I found spray-painted on a wall. Their first name is their middle name is your, and their last name is mom. Can you get me that address? <laughs> I also think that Raphael is going, I can't tell if you're banging Allison or she's banging Isaac or if you're banging Isaac or if you're all three banging. Getting warmer. For this scene, the script said, Allison and Isaac watched Scott waiting for his lead. Finally, he starts into the office. This doesn't play out in the same way in the scene we saw, but I feel like with this and the cut dialogue with Deaton in the clinic, there was a lot of emphasis on Scott being their leader in this episode originally. Yeah, Again. and I could see why, given how things progress. But I would say in the way this played out in the episode, and I'm sure some degree of that was still the case in the script, just because of the circumstances, I felt like Allison was the one kind of taking the lead. I mean, Scott is the first one to speak because that's his biological father, but Allison is the one who kind of assesses the situation, comes up with a plan and starts implementing it, trusting that the others will go along. Yeah. 
it's actually interesting to me because Scott's actually working on his future plan instead of how they were going to get out of that situation. Because we see him eyeing the like flashbox. That's when he the, seals them to blind Deucalion later. Yeah. As Derek and Cora leave in Derek's car, Peter tells Derek not to call until they're at least 100 miles away. Okay, so Peter just wants Derek out of his hair, right? I think so. I mean, because if he was really concerned, he'd leave. That's a good point. While they get interrogated by Raphael, Isaac pops a few icebreakers and blithely tells Raphael that his parents are dead. Now this is my favorite icebreakers commercial. Yes. It's also for sure illegal for him to interrogate underage kids like this. Yeah, he only gets the middle one that belongs to him. (laughs) In the script, Isaac doesn't get to have his victory moment after his snarky comment. Isaac says, mine are both dead. With a smug smile, he reaches to the desk for a box of mints. As he takes one, McCall grabs it back out of his hands. (laughs) (laughs) I know what happened. I know what happened. Our uh, icebreaker overlords saw that cut and were like, I don't think so. He gets the mint. It goes in his mouth. Reshoot that scene. he offers it to everyone. (laughs) He chews it while looking suggestively at both Allison and Scott. (laughs) Icebreakers, they're sexy. The thruple mint. (laughs) Kali and Aiden arrive at the loft to find only Ethan and Lydia there. Kali speaks threateningly to Lydia, which causes Aiden to question his loyalties. Just as Lydia realizes that things might be about to get bloody between Kali and Aiden, Jennifer drops in through the glass skylight in the roof. Ooh, now Jennifer did a Black Widow too. I bought some uh, Black Witch sneakers, similar to the one she's wearing, because I just thought the scene was so hella cool. Kali is like, I know this isn't the point, but you look even hotter than before I killed you. Should we just go back to it? Yeah, you were kind of nerdy before, but evil just like totally works for you. I do have a question, though. Why did Jennifer come here? Because that's where Kali and the twins are. Right. But wasn't the whole point to attack the Alpha Pack during the eclipse when they're all powerless? I think that she's saving that part of the plan for Decalion. Hmm. And she just knew that Kali was just super committed to murdering Derek and that the twin would go along with her, I guess. This all doesn't make sense. She's read the script. Yeah. Jennifer asks Kali if she has any idea how much power it takes to make herself look normal like this. The skincare routine, do you know? Come on, Jennifer, you didn't go normal. You went hot and we all know it. (laughs) Jennifer uses her telekinetic powers to gather a hail of glass shards. Far from apologetic, Kali says she should have ripped Jennifer's head off. I can't believe Lydia stayed through all of this. (laughs) Why did she? I don't know. She should have just been (laughs) tiptoeing. Out of this scene with the other twin. He'd be like, let's go. Let's go. Let's get out of here. In the original script, Kali didn't get her line about ripping Jennifer's head off. Her last line is, I don't care. She would have been so disappointing for her not to have any sort of like big final moment. I mean, I already think it's bullshit that she didn't get to be the last one killed. But, you know, to not even have like the whole like, I should have, you know, we think like she's going to possibly apologize. But instead she's like, I should rip your head off. Like, yeah, that would have just really sucked to not have that. In a rage, Jennifer sends all the broken glass into Kali's body at once. I'm surprised this kills her instantly. Yeah, I don't think it would. Plus, I feel like it would have made more sense for her to save Kali for last. Sure, Deucalion ordered the hit, but Kali was the one who should have had loyalty to her. It doesn't seem like Deucalion actually knew her as a person. 
I agree. Kali should have been the final one because she was the one that really meant something to Jennifer. Right. From a practical perspective, I understand, because Deucalion is established as the most physically powerful of the alphas. But from a writing perspective, from a character perspective, you always want to save the most emotionally resonant for last. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so weird for Jennifer to kill Kali really quickly and then just as quickly move on. I mean, at least she should have tried killing the twins first. Yeah, and it feels like in this episode is when we really see her fixation narrow in on Deucalion. Yeah. And because Deucalion isn't the one she had any kind of relationship with, it feels a little bit hollow. Yeah, no, absolutely. Kali should have been last. Deucalion could have been like the big knockdown drag out and then then the ending of this season could have actually been that Kali has escaped and Jennifer hunts her down in the desert, you know, or mm-hmm. had Jennifer gotten away, you know, where it's like, clearly she's the most important one, but sadly not. With Kali out of the way, Jennifer turns her attention to the twins who have formed the mega alpha. Sorry, but the reflection showing them joining each other really looked like mounting. I just, it <laughs> did. Jennifer makes quick work of the twins, then turns to Lydia and says, what's the line coach likes to say? The bigger they are? The bigger they are. Okay, but wasn't that like a season ago? How long has she been hanging around and apparently going to high school lacrosse games? Because that was the game where Boyd played, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was Abomination. Coach was talking about Eddie the Abomination Abramowitz. Maybe Coach just goes around saying that all the time. Like... He's just throwing chips up, trying to catch him. And he's like, the bigger they are, the bigger they are. He just has a shirt. It just says the bigger they are. And he turns around and just. Okay. New head cannon. After that game, Greenberg had that made for coach. And coach was like, thank you, Danny, for getting this made for me. Dave's like, I didn't make that. Greenberg raises his hand. And he's like, shut up, Greenberg. If you say you made it, you admit you made it. I won't wear it. So Greenberg just slowly puts his hand back down. Poor Greenberg. At the Argent's apartment, Scott and Allison tell Raphael that he can't keep them there without a warrant. Raphael says that he has a desk full of probable cause, referring to all the weapons. But he didn't have a warrant to come in and get to those in the first place. Probable cause can't be established retroactively. That makes no sense. Yeah, that's not how that works. I'm sure these kids have watched enough law in order to know that. (laughs) Allison sets off a smoke grenade from the table of weapons, giving them enough cover to escape the officer's custody. The storm continues to rage, causing Styles to lose control of the Jeep and run to a tree. Back at the loft, Jennifer makes Lydia give her banshee scream. Derek hears it and decides to go back. Derek is such a good dude. All punching bags are. They shit on him constantly, and when push comes to shove, he is always there anyway. Aw, poor Derek. Scott, Allison, and Isaac meet up with Deucalion. Scott says he has a plan and tells Isaac to go find Styles and get to the root cellar while he and Deucalion handle Jennifer. In the script, they actually hear Lydia's scream. Yeah, I think it's strange they didn't include that because I'm sure they would hear it. Because they don't rush to her, right? No. Yeah, so maybe that would be it if they're like, yeah, but if those characters are like, oh my god, Lydia's screaming. What were we talking about? Yeah, I'm sure like it would, you know, have to change what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think it could have been interesting though, like they have that whole situation. They know their parents' times are limited. Deucalion gets there, like Lydia's possibly in trouble. What do they do? That's true. I didn't think about that. And that's good drama. Styles is missing as well. Mm -hmm. This is good drama. This should have been a debated moment where everyone wants to go a different way, but then they all look to Scott. Yeah. Also a cute little detail from the script. When Scott says that he has a plan, it says they give him a look and he replies with, really? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
And I just think that would have been real great. That would have been cute. <laughs> They're like, we love you, but do you? We're going to put that plan right on the fridge so everyone can see it. <laughs> that is a gold star plan. <laughs> when Derek and Cora arrive back at the loft, Derek confronts Jennifer while Cora comforts Lydia, who is still in shock after having seen Jennifer take out the mega alpha. I love that shot of Cora holding Lydia. Tell me, do you ship it? Yes, I do. Jennifer tries to convince Derek that she's done what she's done for him as well as for herself and anyone else whom the Alpha Pack has hurt. Derek tells her to stop talking to him like a politician. Jennifer changes tack and tells him that he can save Scott's mother and Styles' father. I won't mention Argent. That's probably a sore point. Jennifer needs a guardian, and that role can be filled by the sacrifices or by Derek. All you have to do is fall on this sword, which I know you've got a lot of practice at doing. Rough. But true. Very. Derek tells her that he's not alpha anymore. Jennifer says that doesn't matter because she just needs help getting Deucalion to the right place at the right time. Derek points out that she just took out three of the four remaining alphas by herself. You're doing great, Derek. Jennifer acknowledges this, but says that Derek has never seen Deucalion at his strongest and he has Scott on his side now. But he won't be at his strongest, right? He'll be powerless. Isn't that the point? Yeah, I just, this whole plan of hers is so confusing. She... Poisoned Cora as insurance policy. Question mark. She abducted the parents. To kill for power. That she then doesn't use, though. In the scene, she says she can take Derek as a guardian instead of the parents. I, I mean, none of it, like, it's all just very weird. The other thing is she's basically complaining that Deucalion has joined forces with Scott. But obviously the only reason Scott is aligning with Deucalion is because his mother's in danger, which she caused. If she wanted Scott not to help Deucalion, all she would have to do is let Melissa go, which she's kind of acting like she's willing to do anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And spoilers, they don't get sacrificed. So we know that that's what happens anyway. So it feels like she'd just be like, oh, I f***ed up by taking the parents of these characters Mm -hmm. because now they're helping the alpha pack and that is not good for my plan yeah Mm -hmm. they were just the only living parents in this town they're the only people we care about that's that's the thing like she could have chosen any parents or guardians and it's fine that she chose these parents Mm -hmm. but it feels like either there should have been a reason where she is actively trying to put pressure on their pressure points to get them to do something that she needs, which is not what happens. Or it's a matter of opportunity. But then after she's done it, she's like, oh, I f***ed up because now some of the only werewolves in Beacon Hills are joining up with the Alpha Pack, which is bad for my plan. Instead, it's just like, I took these three and we know it's because they're important characters and then complains about the consequences of that instead of just letting them go, which would undo the consequences of that. Yeah. She's also, there's, it wouldn't really stand up to logic for her to take the parents to apply pressure on the kids, even if there were something they could do to help her plan along, because she didn't even do that with Derek. They acted like she was doing that with Derek, but then she just left Cora. So like, okay, you said, help me and I'll help Cora. He did the thing. She didn't help Cora. Then she goes back and asks for help again. 
Yeah, it just doesn't work, unfortunately. Jennifer adds that the eclipse will only last 15 minutes, so that's the only window she'll have to kill Deucalion. So it's just that she needs Derek to help her maneuver Deucalion while he is at his strongest so that he's in the right place when the window hits and he's powerless? Is that the idea? I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like this is a situation where better communication might have helped our protagonist. Scott is aligning himself with Deucalion only to save the parents, and Derek is aligning with Jennifer for the exact same reason. Both parties are claiming to have the goal of not killing the parents, and maybe if everyone knew that, they could figure out the best way to rescue them and minimize bloodshed. Besides which, Scott, Allison, and Isaac clearly don't know that Jennifer has already taken out the other alphas without needing to sacrifice the parents. But obviously, Derek, Cora, and Lydia do know that information. You know what I kind of really wish would have happened? I mean, it would have caused a lot more like character angst that clearly they don't want to have yet and won't have Mm. for a couple more seasons. But if they thought they could only like save one parent and so Scott chooses to side with Deucalion for Deucalion to help him. Derek chooses to side with Jennifer to help save Styles' dad or Styles because he knows what it's like to basically be an orphan. Yeah. Well he knows Scott has like technically Scott has a father. He's shitty, but he exists. And he's here. And he's here. He's around. Although Derek knows that or not, but we'll pretend in my story that he does. So they use that magical texting technology that they supposedly have yeah that would have been good but no one tries to save Arjun (laughs) (laughs) like Scott and Styles are like I mean Allison's just on her own to try to save him which I mean could have been interesting too yeah yeah let's do that as a what if okay oh yeah that would be interesting Isaac and Allison find the root cellar when Isaac hears the emitter Chris activated, but just as they're working to free the parents, the storm raging around them causes the cellar to start caving in. This is such a small payoff on the emitter thing. Like they use scent and the emitter in addition to the insanely dangerous ritual. Why wasn't the ritual enough to know where it was? I mean, in the pilot, Scott and Styles are able to get back to the exact part of the woods where Scott was bitten really easily when looking for his inhaler. Yeah. Yeah, the whole finding the Nematon thing plays out very weirdly. I, I just honestly, yeah, don't know what they were doing because yeah, the woods are big, but could they have just saved those 16 hours and just started like roaming around the woods hoping they'll hear something yeah. or sit something? Like if that was... Or even even if they were like, the woods are too big, once they went under, it feels like they should have easily been able to get to that point. right. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. I just like, it just makes it seem like they never needed to go under because yeah, either they knew the exact location or they didn't. Right, exactly. At the loft, Lydia and Cora realize the twins are still alive. Me and Cora look so hot together. Yeah, they just look good together, right? They do indeed. Cora acts like she cares that the twins were alive, but I don't know why she would. She's probably faking it for Lydia's benefit, but in her head, she's like, Shit, just when I thought I had an opening. <laughs> yeah, she's like, oh, they're alive, yay. Hooray, your fuckboy isn't dead. We're both so happy. Oh no, somehow his throat got cut by one of those pieces of glass accidentally, and they're actually dead again. Oh no. <laughs> Scott and Deucalion send Jennifer a message from the abandoned distillery. This is a very serious thing to happen in a video clip they texted her. It's lucky that Jennifer texted the whole class in the beginning of the season or Scott wouldn't have her number. Yeah, 
pretty ridiculous. Why do they go here? Because it's a set we built. Okay. Here's a question. How would Jennifer know where the distillery even is? She read the script. Oh, because Derek knows. But Scott and Dukalian wouldn't know that Derek knows where it is unless Dials told Scott off screen about the story he heard from Peter. And even if he did, they wouldn't know that Derek was with Jennifer so she could ask him. Not to mention the fact that in Peter's story, Derek wasn't there when the spiral was cut, nor was Derek there when Peter was telling the story. Derek went to the abandoned distillery with Paige. Right, but remember, we commented on that in Visionary. After Boyd's death, Derek goes to the distillery and is staring at the spiral like he knows the story behind it, even though in Peter's story, Derek only went to the distillery with Paige, and that was before Ennis was there and carved the spiral. Calissa's theory about Visionary actually being Peter's story makes the story much cleaner narratively than the canonical version, and one of the reasons for that is that in the story, Peter is present for the carving of the spiral at the distillery not Derek. But the way Derek goes back to the place and stares meaningfully at the spiral, yeah, he knows that it means revenge in werewolf circles, but it just feels like he seems to know the story behind it and its significance to the Alpha Pack, which would make more sense if Derek were the one who was present for Ennis carving the spiral and Peter were the one who just went there with Paige. Oh, right. At any rate, we know that Derek knows where the distillery is because he went there. And I guess if Styles told Scott Peter's story off screen, then Scott would know that Derek knew where it was and could share that with Deucalion. But that still doesn't explain how he would know that Jennifer would know where it was since he doesn't know Jennifer is with Derek. 3A is like the biggest, strangest game of telephone. I guess they're just assuming Jennifer would know where it is. I'm not sure why, though. Yeah. Cora and Lydia take the twins to Deaton's clinic. Meanwhile, Derek and Jennifer arrive at the abandoned distillery. The shot of them walking in through the fog is dope. Yes. Absolutely. I love like that we kind of get the sense of like what's been happening with the twins, but then Derek. Oh, and yeah. I didn't. Oh, yeah. I didn't really make that connection. Yeah. So reverse fisting. <laughs> yes. Scott asks Derek what he's doing. Derek says that, believe it or not, he's trying to help Scott. A summary of Derek for the whole show. Deucalion says that this brother against brother situation is very American. Okay, buddy, let's keep the Civil War out of it. Sure, we'll call this brother against brother. I mean, stepbrother against brother he hates, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Deucalion wolfs out a shift that's different from a regular alpha shift. I hate how he looks here. It just makes me laugh. He looks like a vampire. See, I think he looks like a gargoyle from Gargoyles. Uh, I did love gargoyles. I also could see him looking a bit like an underworld vampire, though. Yeah, he looks like the one Tony Curran plays in the second one, Underworld Evolution. It also reminds me just a little bit of when uh, Tyrell puts on the mask in The Mask with Jim Carrey. Oh, yeah, I can see that. So why does he look like that, guys? I need to know. They wanted a unique look for the demon wolf. Why didn't Kali get a cool alpha look? Yeah. Peter, Deucalion, and the twins all got unique alpha looks. All these dudes be getting cool alpha looks, except for, I guess, Ennis. He just looks so cool already. (laughs) (laughs) Deucalion incapacitates Jennifer and Derek. He roars to get Scott to kneel and instructs Scott to kill Jennifer to save the parents. He just looks like a cute puppy, which is really funny because in the script, it says, like, whenever uh, Deucalion grabs him, it's like grabbing a puppy by the scruff. (laughs) (laughs) Deucalion says that Jennifer's connection to the Tulurk currents is causing a storm that is burying Melissa, Chris, and Stalinsky alive. Killing her will end it. 
but Jennifer protests that Deucalion will force Scott to kill everyone he loves because that's what Deucalion does. Scott says that his pack will save the would-be sacrifices. I don't know where Styles is, but I trust the two that I'm boning oh so much. In the script, there's a flashback before Scott says that his pack will save them. In the flashback, Deaton approaches Scott, lowering his voice. Deaton says, part of being a leader is trusting the ones who follow you to do their part. While all this is going on, Deaton is trying to save Aiden and Ethan. He puts oxygen masks on them. And why does this help? Who knows? I just wish we got more of how werewolf medicine works. Like, we get some scenes of, like, Deaton, like, frantically trying to help someone, but we don't get any indication of this is what they're doing. Yeah. I love that kind of minutiae. Yeah, I love that, that would be shit. Great. At the distillery, Deucalion grabs Scott's clawed hand and tries to guide him to his prey. Seems like this is kind of a cheat if it happens this way. It doesn't feel nice when someone grabs you and tries to make you do something with your wolfy fangs or claws, does it? Well, now he knows. The big thing I want to know is why they had such a poorly timed fight. I know, right? The whole point of the plan was to wait until the eclipse so Deucalion would be powerless. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, she really jumped too far ahead on that one. Yeah, it'd be different if Deucalion attacked them early or something, but that's not what happens. It's like Jennifer and and Derek could have just waited in their car that's out in the fog and just watch the moon. And when the thing starts, he's like, okay, time it right. Okay, run in there now. (laughs) But they don't. Scott uses the knowledge Gerard gave him about how Deucalion can see when in his alpha form to get the upper hand. He sets off flash bombs. But when the smoke clears, Scott realizes that Jennifer is gone and his chance to save the parents might be gone with her. Had the epinephrine in the hospital worked on Peter and actually helped in the fight against the Alpha Twins, it would have been great if Derek then grabs two needles and jabs himself during the scene so that he could last a little longer against the Demon Wolf. Yeah, I I think that would have been good. Yeah. Just before the root cellar collapses fully on top of Melissa, Allison, Isaac, Solinsky, and Chris, Styles arrives and uses a metal bat to hold the roof up. Styles in his bat. Oh, love me some Styles. I was very sad whenever he was wounded there for several scenes. At the distillery, Jennifer returns, but as the Duroc. They're all just going to stand there and wait for her to come through the doorway. Guess what? It's been 16 hours. I'm so disappointed because I really want to see the shoes that Barbara told us about, but we don't really get to from the angles we see. Like yeah. The wooden ones. Yep. Yeah, almost not at all. Jennifer casts Scott out of the way and starts beating a now powerless Decalion. Derek stops her, pointing out that Decalion doesn't know what she really looks like, which means he can't fully understand the price she paid. Speaking of which, the effects makeup on Jennifer is awesome. It sure is. Yeah, it looks fantastic. The jaw portion of it especially is just spectacular. So good. Jennifer heals Deucalion's eyes so he can look at her face. Once he has, she raises her hand to deal the killing blow, but she can't do it. She nearly collapses, and Derek catches her explaining that she'll be weak for a few minutes, like how healing Cora made him weak. Jennifer asks Derek to deal the killing blow instead, but Derek refuses, citing a saying that his mother had about werewolves being predators but not necessarily killers. There's an extra line here in the original script that I don't like, and I'm very happy they cut. Derek says, but I will if it saves their lives. And I'm glad they cut it because it, I feel, undermines the impact of what he's just said about not being a killer. Like her whole point is that killing Deucalion will save lives. So what's the difference between killing him and killing Jennifer? Yeah, which 
is really the problem that I have with this whole denouement because I'm like, oh, yay, I'm so excited. We get to be a true alpha. We're not going to ever have blood on our hands, whatever. But when Deucalion inevitably leaves this abandoned distillery and cuts some throats, is that going to help our squeaky clean little consciences? I mean, I don't know. There's uh, spoilers in Peacemaker, one of the episodes someone calls out Peacemaker for killing people and says, oh, Batman never kills people. And Peacemaker's like, yeah. And how many people have died because, you know, Batman just keeps throwing the clown guy in jail instead of like just putting a bullet in his head. Thank you. I'm glad somebody's (laughs) calling that out. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not saying like that, that we just, you know, sink into a cesspool of moral relativism but you do have to evaluate that you do have to acknowledge that fact and it feels in keeping with Derek's character for him to say I will do it if it will save lives that's who he is that's how he thinks but it doesn't match up with what they end up doing with the end of this season so I agree with you in that way that it wouldn't have made sense to leave that in there and then have things end the way they did. But also, I don't like the way they did. So fair enough. Instead, Derek grabs Jennifer by the throat and demands that she release the parents. It's not very terrifying as a threat, given that he's just said he won't kill. Yeah. Guess there could have been a line there that he would have. <laughs> Jennifer becomes enraged and slashes at Derek. I mean, does she even need her full strength to kill Decaling at this point? He's laid out there. If she can slash at Derek, she can slash at Deucalion's throat while he can't fight back. I was thinking that too. Just do it. I know that Derek kept getting up and trying to stop her, but he was weaker than she was. He wouldn't have managed it if she just slashed at him once and then turned around and slashed Deucalion. Exactly. It seems like such a waste for her to expend any energy at Derek when Deucalion's right there. She could have done a mountain ash circle around Deucalion so he couldn't escape. Or around Derek to get him to stop getting in her way. Yeah. Yeah. So many options. As she viciously attacks him, Derek flashes back to when he let Cora and Boyd slash at him when they were moon crazy. Oh, my heart hurts. All right, let's not recall a scene that's better than this one. Here's a question. Why not just let her kill Deucalion? Uh, morals i don't know i don't know it doesn't make sense at all it's like yeah you cannot be for it but it's like he's like really bad like really bad (laughs) yeah because that's not what heroes do Ugh, whatever the lunar eclipse ends jennifer throws a mountain ash circle around herself and says that in a few minutes the parents will be dead and she'll have all the power she needs to kill a demon wolf even without him being powerless Scott approaches the mountain ash circle. I'm sorry, one more time. Which just begs the question, why did you jump into all of this already and not have already killed the parents? <laughs> like, why? Why? You're, you're literally saying that my plan will totally work if I follow it after I have not followed it. All right, Dino, lay it on us. But Alpha can't go through a mountain ash circle either. A true Alpha can, I guess. I guess. They should talk more about the differences between a regular alpha and a true alpha in terms of power. It's whatever the episode needs at the time. Yeah, but it shouldn't be. No, it, <laughs> it should, should not be, be. An established set of rules. And maybe he can realize things down the line that they didn't know were possible just because there's a sense of rarity about being a true alpha. Yeah. But have at least a baseline. Yeah, no, absolutely. Scott starts to push through the Mount Ash barrier. 
I really wish we saw his skin starting to fall off. Like they had talked about doing like Wolverine from X-Men 3, The Last Stand, the worst X-Men film. (laughs) Scott's eyes turn red as he breaks through. He tells Jennifer to stop the storm or he'll kill her regardless of whether that stops him from staying a true alpha. In the script, Scott was said to have a powerful otherworldly voice while saying, I'm an alpha now. That would have been cool. Eh, See, I'm happy they didn't do it. Hmm. I feel like we already got that from enough people. (laughs) Alpha voices. Gotcha. Before Jennifer can say or do anything, Deucalion gets up and slashes her throat. And Scott just lets him do it. I know, how is that fair? Not saying Scott's sexist, but this is sexist. I mean, it kind of actually is. He's killed loads of people. He flat out told Scott, and I quote, I will kill any living thing that gets in my way. Yeah. Also, did Dukelian's shirt get ripped open or is that just how it is? I think it's a deep button up that's unbuttoned. Keen will feather v-necks. They do look sexy on pretty much everyone. So in the script, it said, Jennifer slowly starts to fall. As she falls, her body changes from drop to Jennifer and back again until the moment she hits the ground. I wish we had actually seen this. I like the idea of her trying to maintain her Jennifer form for as long as she can using the the last bits of her magic until she just no longer can keep up the massage. That would have been great. I agree. Back at the animal clinic, the twins start to recover. It's so crazy to me that Cora helped with this. I mean, she's trying to score points with Lydia. She's like, oh, look at me. I'm so compassionate. I'm helping these two boys who fist each other into a giant alpha, even though they forced my brother to kill my friend. And last time she interacted with one of the twins, I believe it was, he bashed her in the head and then she was like in a coma. Yeah, that's true. Which I I believe that was from the mistletoe, but it's what led into it. Right. Still, still. It was probably a contributing factor. Yeah, definitely. Something we don't get that was in the original script. After Aiden says he knew Lydia liked him, the script goes on to say, and he smiles at her as she shakes her head, not noticing Deaton watching her with a considerable look of admiration. Why? Yeah, I don't know. I thought, (laughs) yeah, this was kind of strange to put in there. It it seems like it would have been building on something like Deaton and him having respect for Lydia, but I don't feel like that's ever like a storyline we get. Yeah, or respect for anyone. (laughs) Take that, Deaton stands. Scott calls Styles and confirms that everyone's okay. Styles asks if Scott's okay because he's a good friend. He is. Scott glances back at Derek, who just shrugs. I love Derek's reaction there. It's just another Monday for me. <laughs> Styles is like, is Derek there? Did he did he ask about me? Did he ask if I was okay? Does he look? Does he look good? I bet he looks good. <laughs> Styles tells Scott to come get them and bring a ladder. From the script, finally the group breathes. Isaac is the first to holler in relief, joined by the others, shouting and hollering in the now very small space of the root cellar. I kind of like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think it would have been a fun moment, you know, for our side characters to get the celebration, but alas. And some catharsis. Yeah. yeah. Before they go to help the others, Scott and Derek give Deucalion a warning. Talia said he was once a man of vision. So they're letting him go in hopes he can be that again. If he can't, they'll come for him. Why are they letting him go? He killed Jennifer just now, right after understanding the scope of what he helped do to her and right after Scott and Derek talked about the importance of not killing people when you can help it. That really doesn't seem like he's changed at all just because he has his eyesight back now. Yeah. Absolutely. And how will they even keep track of him to know whether he's being good? 
They're going to use the Santa Claus. We'll know when he's sleeping. We'll know when he's awake. <laughs> In the script, Scott and Derek actually kind of tag team on saying the last threat, which I think it just in my head just seems really funny scott says but if you're not having your eyes back won't matter and derek finishes because you won't see us coming that is funny because then it's like <laughs> did they like huddle before? Did they rehearse this? yeah <laughs> <laughs> like well then one slowly like you know knocks the other one like yes covertly to be like okay your turn finish it you know what i'm gonna say right yeah that would be good each other's sandwiches <laughs> Back at their apartment, Allison tells Chris about Deaton's warning that the nematon could turn into a beacon again. She thinks she should finish her training, but with a new code. Nous protégeons ceux qui ne peuvent pas se protéger eux-mêmes. Based on Kate's face when we watched this, I'm thinking the pronunciation on the show was not good. It was a French expression for approval. <laughs> <laughs> okay, actually, her guttural R's were decent. The problem was just that she said say instead of ce and puivant instead of pauvre. I know, right? God. <laughs> <laughs> In script, Argent's line is slightly different when Allison says it may return to being a beacon. Argent says, I hope not, because this was a very different place once. And I really want to know more about this. Prequel time. Yeah. Yeah. Scott tells Deaton about how Derek and Cora left. He doesn't know whether Derek's coming back. Part of him hopes so, but part of him hopes Derek will be okay somewhere else. Raphael seems to be staying in town. But... That doesn't mean Raphael is welcome. I do love this closing montage. Yeah, it's good. And the song that goes with it, Kids by Mickey Echo. They used Mickey Echo before too. Who are you really? At the end of season one, it's perfect. I love the dress Allison's wearing in the scene. A white, free people, daisy lace dress. It's a good dress. I have it in black. I have it in white. Scott and Styles both feel the change because of the ritual that Deaton told him about. Feels like looking into the heart of darkness. When Scott feels that way, he turns to his friends. Aw, Deaton asks about Jennifer. Scott says that when they went back into the distillery, her body was gone. Unbeknownst to Scott, Jennifer had crawled back to the Nematon in the hopes that it could once again save her life. But before she can touch it, Peter stops her. Jennifer isn't surprised. She says that others always suffer while Peter always ends up on top. And now that Scott is an alpha, Peter will be able to take it from him and be an alpha again. Her dialogue is slightly different in the original script. Jennifer says, of course it's you. Everyone else suffers, but somehow you come out on top yet again. Because now that Scott is an alpha, you'll be able to steal it from him, won't you? And without having to kill Derek, you'll be an alpha again. That's interesting. Yeah, because I guess, you know, Peter would care about killing Derek? Nah. No. I don't buy it. Maybe maybe that is what she sincerely believes, but having seen Peter through the first couple of seasons, I don't believe that. Yeah. So what do you guys think he hasn't just killed Derek so far then? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I think the generous interpretation is that coming back sapped him of a lot of power. Yeah, he's still strong, but not he can't take an alpha type of thing. And I think it's just the idea maybe is that he's just biding time until he is strong enough again to do something like that. But again, he doesn't really have, he does not really, he does not have an agenda, you know, like even, even like the little something like this or, or whatever, like there's no cryptic breadcrumbs of, of, of a plan in motion. That's just in the background simmering. There's just nothing. He just does things and nothing really comes of it, and it sucks because of how this episode ends. This episode ends with, uh, I knew what you were doing all along, and everyone else is watching going, 
what? What? Why? What? You know, and that's the problem is that this bit with Jennifer would be much more impactful if then you could look back over the season and be like, oh, these four things that he did that were innocuous at the time, we can now yeah. see were actually a straight line exactly, moving to yeah. something, but they're just not there. And Absolutely. so when she, when he like killed her, I'm always the alpha. You're like, well, this is what an egotistical asshole does, but <laughs> not so much an egotistical asshole. So it asshole lines up in plan. that regard. In, in that regard, it's like, okay, well, this makes sense character-wise, but I also want it to be like, and there's a plan as well. Right, you, you wanted to have a little bit of a Machiavellian edge that it exactly. doesn't have. Yeah, because that's who Peter is. I mean, he's definitely that type of character who has that yeah. that feel to him that when he's talking to you, He's not just talking to you. He's positioning you in some way. You just don't know what's happening yet. But that's not what's happening here, and it's unfortunate. Peter becomes furious and slashes her throat, killing her instantly. He is the alpha, he says. He's always been the alpha. The season ends there. I have always been the alpha. That was my plan all along. Don't think about it too hard, though. (laughs) (laughs) So the suggestion from previous scenes seems to suggest it requires Jennifer to use magic and power to keep the appearance of her face. And if she doesn't, she defaults back to looking like the drunk. Do you guys think that's the case? And if so, why is she wasting it here while using her last bit of strength to crawl towards the Nematon? I think that's pretty implied, you know, that, that it takes power to do this. Cause that's because she says that, right? Does she say yeah, that with I, Kali? I was gonna say, I mean, it's it's not even really a suggestion. It's in text because she says in dialogue, "Do you know what it takes to look like this? Yeah. It takes power." Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know because I mean I think that makes the most sense that it's it's Darak we see crawling towards the Nematon, but maybe maybe it's it's for her performance. It's hard to articulate through the makeup. It's hard to maybe emote through that, and I could see this where. You, you know, she's giving something like she's always giving something, but like it, I feel like this exact same scene, but played through Duroc makeup might not come through as impactfully, even though that is probably what it should be. I agree. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Lunar Ellipse. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Like my mother used to say, I'm a predator. I don't have to be a killer. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Haley Webb, who played Jennifer Blake and the Duroc on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Jennifer and the Duroc are like, fan favorites like just Stop. favorites Absolutely. of you know <laughs> really? of like her look and her costume and like her her awesome powers and all that it's just and like, the, so, the yeah. makeup and the backstory i mean just oh, like yeah all yeah. good yeah all good. i mean because I, like i feel lucky playing like having played the part and every time i sort of reflect on playing it i'm just like man that is again it's so rare to get a role like that like in your career and even just again, like reflecting for the podcast today, I was like, there are so many different levels to her that I will still sort of like ripple, you know, in my consciousness, like throughout time where I'm like, oh shit, she really did, you know, <laughs> this, this or that, like, oh wow, that she was really affected by that. So yeah, I'm of course biased about, you know, free A <laughs> of in course, particular. Of course. Um, no shade to Void Styles, who is of course, you know, ultimate bay but 
<laughs> but yeah, nice. no, I'm stoked. I'm really, I'm really excited to, to talk about it and to talk with y'all. Awesome. Fantastic. So how did Team Wolf come into your life? I got an audition for my agent and manager. You know, you'll get like a breakdown for the character, what, you know, what project it is, you know, time and date of when to go in and stuff. And I hadn't actually heard of the show before I got the audition. Sorry about it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I was like, oh, I guess there's a show called Teen Wolf. And so I had only known like the 80s Michael J. Fox movie. And so I had really kind of no idea. And the description of the character was minimal. I think it was just like English teacher. And I was like, okay, my mom's a teacher. So I was like, you know, inspiration. And yeah, I went in and did it. And it was one of those auditions, but I had to do the bird scene in the audition okay. and kind of fake uh, the birds. And I just asked, I think it was Wendy's, the casting director. I was like, dude, do I have to do this? <laughs> <laughs> do you really want to see it? Like, do you really want to see me ducking fake birds in an audition? And she was like, yeah, unfortunately I do. And I was like, all right. And in moments like that, you got to just commit because the harder you commit, the better it's going to be. Mm-hmm. I committed and, and was sort of shocked when I booked it because I was like, I'm not going to get this. And uh, yeah, then I, I watched the first two seasons just to kind of get a feel for the show, to understand what it is and who the characters were. And, and I found out that I would have sort of a romantic thing, um, Derek. And I was like, oh, OK. And, I, you know, so watching the first two seasons, I got I got a feel for for the show and then was like really, really excited to to, to be on it. Like I was excited before and then I watched the show and knew also kind of found out that like, oh, this is a popular show. People really like this show. So mm-hmm. this will be fun to to do, even though at that point I had no idea, you know, what was going to happen to me on, on the show, <laughs> other than I might ke- kiss Tyler Hoechlin. <laughs> so it was a What else do you really need to know? <laughs> yeah. I was like, sold, done hundred percent. And you're paying me for this. <laughs> like, I'll do this for free. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it surprises people i think when people actually watch the show especially su- it surprised me when i watched the show and read the show for the first time because like you hear teen wolf and you're like oh god all right whatever but then you watch it and you're like you're like holy shit they actually put some effort into this yeah i was very surprised actually i i sort of walked in with the same thing like oh, okay it's gonna be werewolves and blah and teenagers and okay sure let's get this <laughs> and then i was like oh shit this is very charming very sort of self-aware in a really sweet way and has a ton of heart and the writing is very it's very touching I I get why it was and is popular so you mentioned the original Teen Wolf movie so that you'd seen it at that point like you had seen the movie before you worked on the show I think I had it's one of those movies that's like in the sort of zeitgeist and so you kind of know about it and I don't know that I ever sort of sat down to watch it but I was very I was aware of it and aware right. of like Michael J. Fox and, and all that kind of stuff. So nice. it wasn't like, oh, one of my favorite films, but <laughs> I was aware of it. <laughs> nice. And wait, which is why I was also sort of surprised that the tone of the show was different. I thought it was going to be maybe comedic. I mean, it is, mm. you know, there are comedic elements obviously in the show, but it gets um, dark. It gets so dark. And I was so into that. I was like, okay, cool. Yes. Cause you know, you have like styles as the sort of main comedic relief. Mm-hmm. But it really gets dark. And especially for a teenager show, kind of wish I had that kind of show, you know, when I was a teenager. I guess we had Dawson's Creek. I didn't really watch that. It was also a horror show. (laughs) Exactly. Him standing in that boat terrified me every time in the opening credits. It was awful. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't want to wait for this horror to end is what (laughs) that song should have been. Oh, my God. There's always time to rewrite it. Well, you got this. There you go. Yeah. 
<laughs> waiting for that gritty Dawson's Creek reboot. <laughs> so you said that when you came in on audition for it, it was pretty much just English teacher. Did you get more information about the character or where it was going when filming started? When I booked it, they said, okay, you have, I think eight episodes is what they told me. And you have a romantic interest, Derek, and that's kind of it. And then I started filming the first episode and had no idea. Kind of kind of just figured, oh, I'll just be the, the new English teacher. And I'm sure something's going to happen, but I don't know what. <laughs> and um, Jeff took me aside and was like, started giving me references for films for the character of Jennifer. He hadn't yet told me about the Duroc, but told me about Jennifer. I'm, I'm very much a big film nerd. So I was very happy that he gave me these references. I watched them immediately when I went home, took notes. <laughs> like, I, I was very into it, but I didn't know. I didn't know the rest of, of what her journey was going to be. So I was kind of flying blind, which was exciting and fun to kind of guess my own mind. Like, what is going to happen? Do you, you remember go. any of the movies that he used for references? The biggest one I think was Romancing the Stone, which I hadn't actually oh. seen. It's yeah. It's a fun movie. It's a really fun movie. Yeah. And I could totally see that, especially the scene when Derek surprises me for the first time and I have the like stick, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like that sort of back and forth, very like Romancing the Stone. And so I kind of tried to bring but that kind of like jolted by how innocent you are like you know those people like bless them I'm like I don't know how you get through life that way I would love to know (laughs) like you're just you're bright-eyed and I'm just Uh tired (laughs) so we had a fan question that was wondering what steps did you take to get into the character shoes so you mentioned the movies Jeff told you about was there anything else and also before the drop reveal where did you think the storyline was going I I always work with music and I always make a playlist or two. So it's like sort of whatever whatever strikes me as I'm reading the scripts. And so I immediately made it a playlist for Jennifer, which is a lot of romantic music, unrequited love. Because again, at that point, I was mostly focused on being romantically linked to Derek. You have the scene where they first meet and she's clearly very smitten. And so, yeah, I made a, a very long playlist that I would just listen to on set when I had moments at home and just tried to bring out that part of myself, you know, the, I guess sort of romancing the stone part of myself. I, I didn't get the sense that she was a woman who had like a ton of friends, you know, maybe she was part of like a book club. I have those elements <laughs> to me for sure. And so I really tried to let those shine and tried to also bring those out via music. And in terms of where I thought the, um, storyline was going you know I thought it would be tragic somehow like if I was there for eight episodes I guess I was sort of thinking about it in terms of a logistical thing as opposed to creative at first I was like okay if it's eight episodes and if I'm with Derek something bad's gotta happen with me either I die or something but I will say watching season two I was like listen (laughs) I am walking into this school far too innocent (laughs) like (laughs) something or someone i.e myself probably has to turn (laughs) so I did suspect I couldn't have guessed the Duroc couldn't have guessed the whole druid storyline but I I figured I might have malicious intent somewhere in some way and so not to toot my own horn but like spoiler alert I was correct. <laughs> and, I, I was right. <laughs> and then I had to like take it when Jeff told me. I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm evil. What? Oh my God. Oh my God. 
I love that you made playlists though. That's so cool. Yeah, thanks. I still listen to them too. A lot of Bjork is on there. I'm a huge nice. Bjork fan. Uh, Bob Dylan is, is on there. With Duroc, I have a lot of film scores and like uh, Dark Night Rises. Nice. <laughs> Instrumental, huge mm-hmm. sound, booming kind of songs but with Jennifer it's all very guilty and like Tori Amos you know oh. <laughs> so she has a Lilith like, Fair poster up at her exactly. house and, uh, and, yeah yeah yep. exactly <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> so at what point did you find out that you were the draw I think it was Motel California and Jeff took me into his office just after we filmed the the romantic scene in Derek's lair or whatever wherever he lives um, <laughs> under the rock where he lives <laughs> I'm just like oh this yeah <laughs> it was after we filmed that and every bit of information he gave me about her backstory and why and stuff like I he had he had a couch in his office and I just was like standing up from the couch like yeah and then like sitting back down like oh my god and then like yeah because I thought it was so cool and so we kind of like nerded out over it Uh, wow yeah (laughs) that's actually one of my most predominant memories of Teen Wolf because I had just become the writer's assistant right before they told you so like one of my first, it was like my very first week in the writer's room and because yeah. his office was in the writer's room and, and like, I think Russell and Joe were there and, mm-hmm. and it's like, they took you in and told you. And I was like, oh, I'm looking around, like, I'm here to witness all this. This is what being a writer is like. So, um, <laughs> That's so cool, man. It really is moments like that, you know, doing sort of what we do that it's just, it's so special to have moments like that. I'm Absolutely. glad we shared that moment even between glass. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was awesome. I was just so happy that I got to be there to witness awesome stuff like that. Yes. So it, was, it was great. I remember yeah. seeing you like walking yeah. in because there was that huge, you know, writer's table. Is the so. table and the ping pong table and, and the all ping that pong stuff. T- yeah, yep, exactly. What was the rest of the cast reaction to seeing you in the drop makeup for the first time? Pretty hilarious. I <laughs> like, because I, I was getting it done. I was getting the tests done and Posey and Dylan came in. And I think Posey was first and he, he was more in awe, just like, whoa. (laughs) And then Dylan kind of trailed in behind him and he just had this kind of like shocked kind of reaction, more grossed out than anything. (laughs) (laughs) Cause it was so good. Like the, the makeup was so good and they were still testing it out, testing out different contacts and stuff. So I think one of the first contacts they tried was more of like a bloodshot look as opposed to the Mm. kind of white that it ended Mm. up being oh interesting um which I still have that photo somewhere I think it's on like a hard drive somewhere but um I think it might have just been like one eye that had a sort of smaller iris and then like larger veins in it and so I think I had those in and they were not prepared (laughs) for for seeing that Daniel Sharman was particularly grossed out by the whole thing. And so I really would just chase him around. (laughs) And he's so tall and like lanky and just like chasing this like green bean around. I I love my job. (laughs) This is amazing. That's awesome. But yeah, they were all very much like in awe. This is another fan question. How long yeah. was the makeup process and was it uncomfortable? It was about three hours. And the only uncomfortable part, because the team is so good, they, they know what they're doing so well. They've, they've done this before. So they know how to help keep you comfortable. And we listened to music the whole time and chatted. And so putting everything on wasn't uncomfortable. It was 
the taking it off <laughs> was <laughs> a process. And, you know, you have to use some harsher stuff to take that off, to take off the glue and stuff from your face. It's all like skin safe, but I have very sensitive skin. And so I broke out, you know, quite a bit. And then I had to shoot as Jennifer. And I was like, no, <laughs> my company <laughs> broke it out everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't uncomfortable. It was actually really, really fun. Except one day, I think I got called in and got my full gear, you know, got the whole thing, my, my outfit, my face. And I think I was there for like eight hours or something and they didn't end up needing me that day. <laughs> so oh. I literally was like rock in my trailer, just like staring <laughs> <laughs> at the wall for eight hours. Like maybe they'll call. And, you know, people knocked on my door to check on me to see if, you know, I needed water or food or anything. And I thought they were going to call me to set. So every time I heard a knock, I was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and they're like, you good? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the the process. It's fun to hide in that way. What was it like working in that costume? The toughest part of that costume was the shoes because they had these very narrow platforms on the bottom. And so the combination of those shoes plus my contacts, which I, I wear contacts in real life and those contacts were not my prescription. So I couldn't see <laughs> very well. And I had these very high shoes and, you know, the reveal in episode 10, 11, where, where I come through the dust basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a great shot. It is. I so great. And I was like, I cannot mess this up. Like I've, I have to just walk and not fall. Mm -hmm. I'm like Jennifer Lawrence accepting her Oscar, just like, well, that <laughs> happens. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I can't mess this up. I just have to do this. And just like zeroed in on like one spot that I could kind of focus on and was like, I just got to keep walking. <laughs> but the costume itself, like getting fitted for it was so fun because I always kind of bring up the elbows of it because I've never been measured for my elbows before. <laughs> and they were measuring, I mean, like, every inch of me and I they showed me the the mock-up of what it was going to be and I was like this is very fashionable <laughs> like this is very trendy and when I saw the material I was like oh my god this is so great putting the final thing on like as an actor you do take on form of the character and I was like oh I cannot wait to wear this <laughs> but also I can't like gain weight <laughs> or like move weird because like no one told me not to gain weight, but like just how it moved. I was like, I am stitched fully into this thing, <laughs> but it was very tailor fitted to me. I loved it. I loved wearing it. I hated kind of giving it up. <laughs> I was like, can Aww. I just take this home and wear it on the red carpet? <laughs> that would have been awesome. awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. 100% would. Yeah. Do you feel like there was anything genuine in Jennifer's relationship with Derek or do you feel like she was only using him? Another really good question. You know, it is revealed she takes power from all of these different people in order mm -hmm. to give herself power because she has lost all of her power. Hashtag power. My God, I just said power like 17 <laughs> times. I do think there was something genuine in her feelings for him. And I think that's in part what makes her so tragic. It's more compelling if there is something there than mm -hmm. if there's not. And so I at least played it as if there is something there because, you know, there's like Jennifer, the Duroc and Julia. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of these three aspects to her. And Jennifer, I feel is this sort of ramped up Julia in a way. And there's a loneliness there. I feel like they were sort of like, not ships passing in the night, but had none of this ever happened and had they met, I think it's very possible that there could have been 
a genuine, healthy <laughs> kind of <laughs> relationship there. And I think it what made it so tragic is that she really did have feelings for him, but her revenge track superseded those. She could not give up what she was doing. And so that's, I think, good writing <laughs> where you then Absolutely. put a wrench in the plans and the wrench is like, I really care about this person. Because if she didn't care, again, h- how compelling yeah. is that? And it wouldn't be difficult for her to do certain things, especially, you know, at the end, she asks him, she, she kind of trusts him in this way. She's like, he's like the one person she can kind of trust and, and asks him to take care of Deucalion. And he's like, no. And I think somewhere she knows that that's the right answer, but is pissed. <laughs> right. And is, and, is, and is betrayed and truly betrayed by him. And that has nothing to do with like him. He has his own feelings about her and all this kind of stuff. But I think it's the timing was bad <laughs> and yes. her revenge track was bad, bad in terms of her murdering a bunch of people and stuff. I do think there was absolutely some genuine feelings there that were warped and, and twisted, unfortunately. It's, it's really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. Jeff and the writers were three were very, very good. But I think Jennifer is a great example of just when storytelling, a great example of storytelling where you have this character whose fatal flaw is their single-mindedness towards something and hers being revenge, but then also this other thing coming in. And it's kind of like, well, you can get the thing you want, which is the worst possible thing, or you can have this other thing that's actually good for you. And then watching them- That's drama. You're right. It's so much better than her just being like, oh no, she used it the whole time. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of boring, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's sort of two-dimensional and like, okay, that is what conflict is. That's what drama is. And that's what, you know, storytelling, when it is really, really good, is that kind of conflict. Always fun to watch. Yeah. And fun to play. If I didn't care, what do I have to hook into? You know, it's like, okay, I have my revenge, but then I'm relating to him. Like he's, you know, a peon or like a fly, a mosquito (laughs) that I gotta go like, get out of my way. Right. As opposed to somebody who I have big feelings for. It kind of enhances the tragedy of her character. Her life was so destroyed by being used by someone that she trusted. Yeah. And she was so hurt by that, that she kind of inflicted it on someone else. Exactly. Regardless of whether that was what she ultimately was trying to do, you know. Exactly. Which is like sort of tale as old as time, you know, it's like, it's not like she had other people around her to help her. (laughs) I think if she had that, that would have helped. She might not have necessarily gone down this path. She was totally single-minded in her task. And it is that kind of classic thing of like, is it worth it? Mm -hmm. Is this going to bring back what you want it to bring back? And no, it's not. And you leave just utter devastation in your wake and you and you hurt people in in really bad ways which is always i think a, a really compelling story because we can all relate to those feelings in one way or the other you know the feelings of like revenge or envy or being betrayed and like well, what would what would i do i mean i wouldn't go like garrot people <laughs> <laughs> We never know. It's true. It's true. I'm not going to rule it out. (laughs) I've done this before. It's fine. (laughs) I really liked what you said about it's almost like there are three characters. There's Julia, the Duroc, and there's Jennifer because... Jennifer does feel kind of like wide-eyed and innocent. And it's interesting to think about Julia creating that persona, that the persona she decided to put on was this person who is so innocent has never had her trust betrayed. 
Right. She's like putting on the persona of someone who's like what she is like, but has never experienced that big tragedy. Yes, you know exactly. Yeah, because, you know, in the later episodes, there's at least what I kind of played too and, and how it was, you know, written as well is there's a drop. Okay, you know that I'm this monster. I, I don't need to fake anything anymore. I, I just am this person. So, you know, like the scenes in the elevator, you know, with Hecklin and I even tried to like lower my voice a little bit to drop it even a little bit further into my body because there is elements of Jennifer in Julia. You could even think about if that those were kind of idealized versions of herself, which is one of the sort of ripple things I was talking about of like, that keeps hitting me. I was like, damn, I got to play like three characters. This is so cool. Like when, <laughs> when do you get to do that? Right. Jennifer is kind of like what Julia is like when you pull out the trauma. And that's what the Dirac is. Exactly. It's like separates into two parts. Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. So Team Wolf villains sometimes come back into the story as heroes. Had Jennifer not been killed at the end of 3A, do you think she could have found her way back to Beacon Hills as a good guy? Absolutely. I mean, one, I talked to Jeff about it. I was like, dog, (laughs) listen. (laughs) I know you got to kill me, (laughs) but (laughs) let me pitch some ideas at you. (laughs) Yeah, because in part, she's a druid. Like her whole thing was helping people and being, you know, I guess sort of like a mother figure, a sort of like shepherd in a way. You know, like you said, the sort of splitting of like Jennifer and the Duroc being these two parts of her sort of split down the middle. If you take out the Duroc and even, I guess, kind of blend Jennifer and Julia, who Julia feels to me a little bit more kind of grounded, you Mm -hmm. know, druid sort of connected to the earth and and Jennifer as more like flighty bird kind of thing. But if you blend those two, I think you could have a really lovely character. But I also think, you know, it's like, well, the Duroc left so much devastation, <laughs> you know, are you going to trust this face again? Right. I would love that. And I do, I do think it will, it could have been possible if even in sort of like an ancillary kind of way, if I'm like the Oracle in <laughs> the matrix, I'm just oh, like right. baking a pie and, and the <laughs> characters come and visit me and I'm like, oh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what you do. There is no spoon. <laughs> oh, there you go. Nice. <laughs> you know, I thought that that could have been cool. Nice. That would be fun. Yeah, I would like to see that. Yeah, me too. What was it like returning for the season finale as the Anikite? And were you excited to be there for the end of the show? Yes. I, I felt so honored when I got asked back and so excited. And I, I kind of got why I was the person that Derek, you know, I guess like couldn't really see. Again, because you have that play into... If there are feelings there, that's why this is going to be traumatic for both involved. So I was so happy to kind of lean into that. Because again, it's like you add a fourth element in a way to my part kind of in that episode where I'm not just the Duroc, I'm not just Jennifer, I'm not just Julia, I am this other character as well. So as an actor, it's like you have to really lean into those elements because you're not just straight playing the part, you're playing it as interpreted by another character. And so it was fun to kind of like walk down a hallway and just like taunt Tyler Hecklin, who is like the sweetest man of all time. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it. It was, you know, short little thing. I think I was there for like a day and yeah, we felt very honored to be back for the final episode and to be back in that way. And for, you know, my sort of number one scene partner, Tyler Hecklin, that was really fun. It was fun to reconnect with everybody. I love the pictures of you and Tyler Hecklin whenever you're in the drop, like when he's like, just like <laughs> holding you up. Right? Oh, that's so like, good. <laughs> <laughs> we bought a house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so on Team Wolf, the villains always have interesting powers, but yeah. you're the only telekinetic villain we've had. And do you think that made her the most powerful villain? Listen, you know, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> 
Of course. I've already said power 78 times. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like when you ask people if you could have one superpower, a lot of times what it is, it's like, oh, I wish I could fly or be invisible. And, you know, you want to be invisible in parts, you can like spy on people, <laughs> see if they're talking about you. <laughs> I mean, there are some insanely powerful villains on the show in, in all sorts of really cool, unique ways. But having that power is singular, able to kind of do these things. And I think that's the thing is she's able to do other things that not a lot of the other villains are able to do and do them without sort of like physically <laughs> needing to do them right. herself, her body, which is again, cool. I'm like, ah, what a cool character, you know, much good still player. So do you have any fun stories from the Teen Wolf set that you would like to share? I just had such a great time the whole time filming. I, I really couldn't wait to go to work every day. You know, one of the one of the most fun times was finding out that Dylan went to high school with my brother. They went to the oh, same high really? school. Yeah. And my brother's younger than me by about four years and reminds me actually a lot of Dylan. Like a <laughs> lot. They're they're very even similar like coloring. They're they're very similar. And you know, we were sitting in our chairs, you know, between scenes and we were just kind of talking and he was like, wait, are you Ian Webb's sister? And I was like, what is happening? Because <laughs> we, you know, we lived in Hermosa, which I think is where Dylan lived, or at least the South Bay. We we lived there for a while. And Dylan's sister was actually in my brother Ian's class. And oh, wow. Dylan was like, I'll never forget your brother because he was like the only one who was nice to my sister when we first moved to our new high school and which tracks my brother is amazing I, I can never say enough great things about my brother but it was really fun to have that connection usually it's sort of like a professional connection like oh we worked together with the same person or oh this this and that and so that was like the first day we worked together and he was like oh I know you <laughs> like I, I know your brother so that was really fun actually one of my favorite things about filming, I'm unfortunately very bad at breaking. <laughs> I I break character pretty often. If something's funny, I find it very hard to tamp that down. <laughs> and the moment in the scene where I'm fighting the twins when they're the huge mm -hmm. person mm -hmm. and I have to pull them apart, just the idea of that was <laughs> so funny to me. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't take it. And so like, I tried biting my cheek. I tried like thinking about horrible things, you know, to not break. But every time I had to go and we were like rehearsing and I had to grab the twins who are both hilarious and lovely by the neck and try to like <laughs> push them apart. And they had to try to like keep their heads together. I couldn't hang. I was like, you, I, I'm, you just have to fire me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hire someone else to do this because bro, I, I cannot. And so I had to do multiple takes and I, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody who I think was getting quite frustrated at me. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's it. I got to just like shut this down. But that was one of my favorite moments. Teen Wolf fans are some of the most passionate fans out there. Uh, do you have any memorable fan encounters that you'd like to share? Oh my God. Yes. I agree with this. Like they are extremely passionate. This symbiosis between the fans and the show is so yeah. beautiful. You know, I went to, I did HowlerCon one year. And so I was able to meet actually a lot of the fans and this group, like all of a sudden, you know, we were doing a panel and it was going to be my birthday, I think in a few days. And they like stopped everything and they brought out a ukulele and a cupcake. 
and they sang to me in front of like you know dozens of people and they like meant it (laughs) they were so like (laughs) they were really singing me happy birthday and actually brought me a cupcake and like it was just so touching and I have felt so lucky to be you know a part of this show in part because it comes with like all of these incredibly creative wonderful people and I've been able to have conversations with fans and talk to them and hear their thoughts about Jennifer and, and like who they are as people, you know, like their siblings are having babies, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, congratulations. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) yeah, it's a really unique position to be in. And I feel very lucky that I've been able to to be there and meet a bunch of wonderful. The show means so much to them. Sometimes elements of characters mean so much to them. You don't know what's going to kind of strike someone. And I've, you know, had a few fans kind of come up to me and tell me how much certain things meant to them, even to just like claim their own power in certain ways. And it's really beautiful to see it firsthand, how it affects people in positive ways. So I'm very fortunate and grateful to be in this position. Are there any characters that you wish Jennifer had interacted with more on the show? Yes. I really wish there had been like a parent teacher meeting. I really wish there had been a Melissa Ponzio, Lyndon Ashby situation where I was concerned maybe about Scott's and I guess Styles attendance. And we, we had had like a powwow, you know, I was like, well, listen, if I'm, if I'm an adult in this and not a teenager, let me hang with some of the adults. Like, let me, let me hang. So yeah, I really wish I had gotten some parent teacher conferencing with, with Melissa and, and Lyndon. I think that would have been really fun. That would have been great. Yeah. Yeah, Right. That would be so interesting. Yeah. And then later, like after the reveal comes, they could be like, you know what? If if that's what all this is about, why didn't you have a parent teacher conference and tell my mom about how bad I'm doing in English? That's what I want to know. And you'd be like, because you're doing bad in English. That's why. I'm drooling the whole time. I have no lips. I'm just like, listen. (laughs) That would have been amazing. That would have been so good. So good. And I think doable in the show. Like, there's a way to fit that in. Oh, totally. Absolutely. (laughs) Teen Wolf is very good at toggling between different tones very quickly in a scene. Yes, absolutely. That totally been, could yeah. have worked. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, like right before, you know, Peter like slashes me across the throat. Scott's like, wait, <laughs> like, that would have been really fun. <laughs> what were some of your inspirations for playing the character? Anything you took from other pieces of media? Yeah. I mean, definitely the music. Like I would listen to, especially the Banshee scene, Lydia's, I guess, reveal. After every take, I would kind of, if I was able to go back and listen to music again, like the Dark Knight Rises, sort of like huge banging drums, things like that. But mostly I would say music and then just kind of whatever imagery would kind of pop into my own my own head. I think actually the, the image of like a tree was actually very helpful for me because trees are oh. so powerful. She was nice. obviously connected to a tree and looking into, you know, different root systems because I wanted to be rooted in that way as the Duroc to have that kind of raw that she's drawing from. So who in the cast do you think would be the best alpha in real life? Holland Roden is a very interesting person. She's very smart. She's really funny. And I, I so I'm, I'm kind of inclined to say Holland, but it's like, I don't know that these people would want that power. <laughs> you know, it's like, would yeah. she want to be? I don't know. But also it's like, you know, I look at someone like Melissa, who is just such a rock solid, encouraging loyal person she's someone i would follow into war no problem she wouldn't even have to ask it's like she could give me a look and i'd be like i'm right behind you <laughs> whatever you need i'm there so yeah maybe i'll go with uh melissa ponzio we'll allow it. 
listening. <laughs> She's like, F- you, this is not. <laughs> I'm a beta. How dare you? <laughs> I know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> nice. So we, we've talked a lot about Jennifer's backstory and the core of that story obviously is her betrayal by Kali, but mm-hmm. we don't get a lot of detail about that relationship. What do you imagine that relationship was like before Kali betrayed her? I, again, sort of like dramaturgically speaking, it's going to be richer if there are deep feelings. And I think what their relationship was, was a very intimate one and not necessarily a romantic one. Although I know people have kind of brought that up and and kind of asked that and like, sure, why not? But I really think there was a deep, deep trust there and being her sort of emissary, you know, being someone that she kind of goes to, I felt like Julia held those, held that position with a lot of integrity and honor and, and reverence. And I think she was able to be personally intimate and have trust with Kali more so than, than anyone else. And maybe shared things, you know, about her own feelings that she might not have shared with, with other people and felt a real kinship with her. So to be betrayed by her in particular would have been the ultimate betrayal, would set you down a path of revenge. (laughs) What would make this person capable of murder? You know, the stakes have to be pretty high. If, especially as an actor, if I'm going to ground this in anything, (laughs) which I should. I have to ground it in this deep connection. And so I really think their relationship was one of of really deep intimacy, you know, telling a friend you're like number one secret and then they tell someone. So I think they had a very deep relationship, which is also why, you know, before the whole shards of glass, when Kali is like, I don't care to have someone that you love that you trusted with your full self to then just be like, I don't care about you. That's going to set off some <laughs> feelings. Yeah. So I think that they had a, a very deep relationship. I'd watch a whole like prequel show about like the relationship leading up to that. Oh, right? oh yeah. Same. You know, you can only tell so many stories <laughs> on, on one like right. show and stuff. But yeah, that was one thing I wished that there was time to kind of explore further. That would have been great. I definitely wondered if it was a more than friends thing, but... I tried to keep the question classy so that no one would be like, objection, leading the witness. <laughs> so how romantic do you think they were? <laughs> like, I think the answer's in the question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting trapped here. Yeah. Like, can I answer differently? <laughs> right. I de- but I also definitely think it's possible. Like, and it could be the kind of thing, almost like a remains of the day where, you know, Anthony Hopkins is so deeply in love, but he cannot say anything because of his job, because of his station in life. And I think it could have been that kind of thing where Julia could have been so deeply in love with Kali, but she can't say anything. She can't move on it. She can't do anything. So then you have that extra betrayal, you know, Mm -hmm. of the like shame, the internal shame of not being able to fully be yourself. I think there are a lot of different ways you can kind of go. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah, totally. So if you could have played any other characters on Teen Wolf, who would you have picked to play? I feel like Styles is a classic. I feel like that's somewhat of a classic answer. (laughs) That would be so fun. And then to be Void Styles. Come on. Uh, 
come on, that is a dream. Like when I, when I heard about Void Styles and I was gone, that was like the ultimate betrayal. Haley Webb going on a revenge track, <laughs> started garroting people. And I was like, how dare, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, because, you know, he has so much heart. He's like the Samwise Gamgee of, you know, of Teen Wolf. And so, and, and obviously, you know, Dylan brings so much to that part that he really lights him up. So I don't think I would <laughs> do as good a job, but- I think that would be a really fun character to play. Do you have a favorite episode of Teen Wolf? I really liked Motel California. I thought it was very cinematic. Like, yeah. Because you, you have this, all of these different threads being revealed and being kind of put together and you see how they, they kind of connect. And I love that shot of Holland, you know, where she's like on the ground looking at the fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the wind is blowing and uh, I, I even got like little chills. <laughs> And you don't quite know yet about, you know, Jennifer and Derek. And then there's this, you know, he is becoming like romantically involved with her at that moment. And there are things people are finding out. And yeah, I thought that was just a a really apex kind of episode. I really, really liked that one. It's a fan favorite. Oh, really? I get it. A poll and that was by far everyone's favorite winner. Really? Oh, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. It's a really, really good episode. I think across the board, it was like really extremely well done. What was it like being the impetus for Scott's transformation into a true alpha? Being connected to that was really special. Like when I read that, it was fun to feel further embedded in the series and not just like, oh, you're bad. Everyone hates you. Go home. (laughs) To be able to kind of witness their creative process with that and to hear conversations on set either between like Jeff or the directors about what this means for Scott and all this kind of stuff and and hearing them kind of discuss it. I felt very privileged to be in that position. So it was kind of cool to do that and then be part of the reveal for Lydia because her scream is obviously so iconic. Right. And then to be like, oh, by the way, I'm going to erase this off like a scratching, you know, (laughs) with a penny and be like, you're a banshee dog. Like... (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't really thought about those two things together, but that the true alpha reveal and the banshee reveal they both come from jennifer and i wonder if like for her character it was kind of frustrating because her her whole thing is that she had all her power taken away hashtag power and she had to go (laughs) on this whole really complicated journey to reclaim her power but in the meantime she's sort of like presiding over these other characters self-actualization and it must be frustrating to be like Ooh, all you had to do was push through an invisible circle or all you had to do was like <laughs> what did you scream and let me explain it to you. Yeah. You know what Meanwhile, I mean? I'm like, walking on you heels. Know what I had to do? <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Have a seat. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, 100%. I think I think so too. I mean, just, you know, as like the actor, I'm just like, wow, that's that was easy for you. Nice cool reveal. I had to walk in stilts, you know, when I couldn't see. Amazing. But no, yeah, I think there's definitely that element to it too and then she dies and then you're like well yeah sorry girl like <laughs> i guess just don't kill people moral that is the, that is the entire it's, moral it's of teen moral wolf. Of don't kill people that is the moral yeah, of, yeah. it's and a good all moral. these things there would be no teen bad wolves. thing yeah <laughs> yeah i'm down i've heard worse morals yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what scene was the most fun or the most challenging to film i had a lot of fun with hecklin in the motel california scenes he had to be shirtless more than I did (laughs) 
And so, you know, there's a, there is a special kind of bond to have with other actors when, when you're doing scenes like this. I just remember laughing so much with him while shooting that and in part trying to like crack jokes, not that it was like, you know, it's MTV. It's not like, a you know, the scene itself wasn't like super explicit, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's like a vulnerable thing. And so try to keep it light. <laughs> um, and respectful. So I just remember just having so much fun with him during that. And, you know, you got to figure out the angles of kissing and stuff. And he has to like <laughs> lean on his biceps to like, and I'm laying there. And again, I'm like, don't laugh. Um, just like, <sighs> yeah, I really love doing that scene. And then I would say the most challenging scene was the whole alpha reveal scene, mm-hmm. just logistically, you know, with Deucalion and fighting him and then having to go into my Duroc makeup. And we shot sort of further out having to walk in those shoes, that was challenging, but also sort of conversely the scene where I'm fighting everyone, where I crash to the ceiling and then I'm fighting Kali and all these people, man, I could do that 365 days out of the year. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I will not go home. No, I'll just keep fighting here. I feel like I'm in a music video and I am living my fantasy. <laughs> like, let me have this. So I also really, really enjoyed that scene. Team will villains also sometimes come back to life. If the opportunity presented itself, would you want to come back into the world of Teen Wolf? Yes. 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 And apparently there was like a movie that was announced yesterday. <laughs> even if I came back as sort of like even more ragged, you know, <laughs> And there's like, help me, like <laughs> the bride and Kill Bill just like yes. bumbling oh through God. with dust flying. <laughs> yeah, no, I would love to in, in kind of any fashion. So this is our last fan question. Did Jeff Davis tell you about the plan for the original owner of Jennifer's face to appear in season five if Tyler Hecklin hadn't left? You know, I think he did. I think this is part of the like, oh, how could we kind of come back? How can I kind of come back? How can, um, you know, that kind of happen? And so he did, I think that was one of the things that he told me about, which I thought if I'm not mistaken, they were going to kind of start to do that, but then yeah, Hecklin left. And so I was like, thanks. (laughs) 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 Not kidding. But, um, yeah, he did tell me about that. And I think they were starting to kind of move toward that, which would have been so fun but I'm happy for Hecklin and the rest is history I think it would have been really interesting like yeah he said it would have been like a very like vertigo storyline I was yeah I know yeah Uh, yeah because I didn't know that he made that sort of like a a public thing because I mean he like told me about it and I was like that would be perfect like that would be the way also to kind of come back but yeah alas and it'd be a whole new character so it'd be this other person yeah yeah Come on, guys. Let me have. Let me have this. <laughs> I should have texted Hecklin and been like, "Listen, bro, hang on. We gotta yeah. talk. Yeah, Give me a solid man. Just yeah. stay on for another Just season. Do it for me. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's like Haley, why? <laughs> I, don't, I don't owe you anything. Because I want to <laughs> go to work. That's why. Yeah, exactly. I'm dying here. <laughs> he blocks my number. That's <laughs> very unsuperman of you. Yeah, <laughs> Superman doesn't ACW, block people. It's Haley. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Haley, do you have any upcoming projects you can tell us about? There's a movie called Blonde with Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. I'm in that. Awesome. And I just shot another little movie. I'm not sure when it'll come out, but I'm also working mostly now on my own stuff. And I did a short film a couple of years ago called Joya Noel, and I'm working on the feature version of that to direct that. Awesome. Uh, oh, wow. So yeah, I've always directed things here and there, and I'm really trying to kind of do that 
more because I love it. So yeah, that's kind of what I have going on. So that's awesome. Haley, this has been an absolute pleasure getting yeah. to talk to you. Thank for you our show. so much. Oh my God, my pleasure. For sitting down with us. Yeah, absolutely. Fun. We had a great time talking with Haley, but now it's time to get back to spoilers. So at a convention during a panel that also involved Dylan O'Brien, Tyler Hecklin explained a scene that he had pitched to happen between Derek and Styles during the events of Lunar Ellipse. The scene would happen when Selinski is taken by the Duroc, and the way Tyler Hecklin described it was, he said, I really, really wanted a scene where it was Derek and Styles in the Jeep going out and trying to find Stalinsky. And Derek's always the one that's always dealt with his anger. And that's been a huge part of him. And so I think he really understands that. And I thought it'd be really great to have a scene where Styles is so upset and so angry about what's going on that he just needs to get that anger out. And that Derek basically would let it beat the crap out of him and just hit him over and over and over again and be that punching bag because Derek's a werewolf and he can heal and he can take it. So I thought it'd be a really great scene where he's like, hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And he's kind of losing it and eventually just starts hitting Derek and he just lets him. He lets him like he understands that anger. And I think for him to let him get that anger out and really be that punching bag for him, I thought that would have been kind of like a cool scene. Then Dylan O'Brien added, it'd be a really sweet moment between the characters. Eventually, they said Styles would be exhausted with emotion and Derek would put a hand on his shoulder, kind of mirroring Styles putting his hand on Derek's shoulder in currents. Okay. My God. Ugh, my that would heart. have been a good scene. That would have. It would have been really good. I've read things yeah. that kind of have stuff like that in it. And I don't know if they yeah, would be able to take it. Fans really, really enjoyed that proposed scene. I'm shocked. Because, you know, it's visceral and yeah, very. intimate in a way. There's some kind of emotional vulnerability and an intensity between them that obviously a lot of Steric fans really, really enjoyed. But separate from that, I think that sounds like a great scene. I'm in favor. Yeah. So on the subject, though, of the car accident, Styles's car accident doesn't actually play significantly into the plot, does it? Other than if you buy into the theory that somehow leads to the naked snake. But what theory is that? I'm not familiar with that theory. Also, I think it was just there to amp up tension and to show how bad the storm was getting. Yeah, but it just, I feel like should have some relevance. I yeah. agree. I, I find it odd when Teen Wolf includes setups that don't seem to pay off. Teen Wolf is always so strapped for time. Yeah. So I guess one theory is that Styles became possessed by the Nikitsune while he was like unconscious and like otherwise he wouldn't have survived the car crash and like that's what allowed him to like walk away from it interesting because he'd been like fully unconscious and then yeah he's just like jumps up and he's you know Fine. jumping down there and yeah ready to save them and okay. everything so yeah. I guess it's just like you know in the moment he's still vulnerable from the ice bath of like you know opening himself to, up to a sacrifice and then he has that happen somehow like enables the nikitsune to like get in him and, then and i mean emotionally him, he's at yeah possibly the lowest point he's been so far in the series because he believes that his dad is about to die or is dying when we were filming this episode, we were breaking the fox and the wolf from 3B, where Nishiko buries the jar at the Nimaton. 
In this episode, Lunar Ellipse, there's an overhead shot looking down at the Nemeton as the ground starts to cave in, and I pitched that in this shot, we should see the jar. Not like a close-up or anything, but just a small part in the wide shot. That's a great idea. Yeah, I know. So at the end of this episode, we see Cora and Derek leaving the loft. Scott expresses this uncertainty as to whether Derek is coming back. But having seen the rest of the show, we know that Derek ultimately comes back. Cora does not. So I guess at the end of this episode, Cora's like, I know you saved my life, but I don't want to be in yours anymore. And Derek was like, that makes sense. Oh, <laughs> that's that rough, hurts. but yeah. I would like to think he took her somewhere. I think they end up saying she's in Mexico or something. Or, Back yeah, in I South mean, America. Mexico, South America. That he helped her start a life somewhere new. And she thinks he's going to start it with her. And then he says, no, I have to go back. And she's like, well, I'm going to go back with you. And he's like, no, I want you to stay here. I want you to find a life for yourself. Yeah. And be happy. And it's a very emotional moment that happens between them. But I like the idea that he's the one who encourages her to stay. And that she actually thinks like, yeah, they're going to kind of just like start their own kind of like pack there. But yeah. he realizes he has a responsibility to Beacon Hills, but he doesn't want to put that burden on her. No, Aww. absolutely. That would have been, I mean, that would have been really good and, and impactful. Yeah, but I, I like the idea that after the very sweet moment we have of her, like trying to nurse him back to health after he's like sacrificed for her, I don't believe she would just easily want to abandon him. Yeah. It's kind of I, up that we yeah. don't really ever learn how that played out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I like the idea that he did take her back and she thought they're going to start a pack together and he told her no there always there does need to be a hail in beacon hills that's just kind of a thing and it can't be peter <laughs> and it can't be peter so i need to this go keep important. an eye on that mother but that being said we really can't have a lot of hails in one place anymore ever again in case we decide to throw an ill-fated house party so um <laughs> <laughs> so but but he's just like we have to there's only a couple of us left. We need to keep our distance in case, because like if they get all of us, then we're done. There's only three of us. If they get us all in one place, well, I'll, there will be no more hails type of thing. Watching this episode and really watching 3A again, I was reminded of a Tumblr post that was a gift set. And the gifts were comparing some of the moments and imagery shared by Derek and Styles in some scenes and Derek and Jennifer. We've talked on the show before a little bit about how Cora kind of feels like girl Derek. And there was a hot second where it seemed like they were trying to do Styles and Cora as a potential thing. But what the creator of this Tumblr post was pointing out was that there are also a lot of parallels between Derek and Styles. And Derek and Jennifer, who obviously do have a sexual relationship canonically on the show. So this was a post by Cole the Wolf, and they had written, I wanted to point out something that I noticed about the parallels between Jennifer, Derek and Jennifer, and Sterek. Up until 306, the parallels consisted of Jennifer mimicking the scenes that had already happened between Styles and Derek. But... I noticed that once we got to 307, it switched. Now we have Styles putting his hand on Derek's shoulder in an attempt to comfort, and we have Styles tending to Derek, who's passed out on the floor. And then the post goes on to say, 
instead of Jennifer using the things that happened between Styles and Derek to build up a relationship, we're seeing Jennifer's toxic touch on Derek being purified through more parallels. And the gift set points out several moments like Derek saving Styles from Isaac, who is kind of moon crazy just because he was newly bitten versus Derek saving Jennifer from Boyd and Cora when they're fully moon crazy. There's the word vomit <laughs> moments. Styles obviously does the whole word vomit thing quite a lot. With Jennifer, you get the whole thing in her classroom where she's like, that's assuming that I was stable to begin with and my therapist begs to differ, you know, that whole thing. There's the image of Derek reaching their car in the Beacon Hills High School parking lot. This happens with Styles and Magic Bullet. It happens with Jennifer in Motel, California. There's the image of them carrying Derek with his arm over their shoulder. This happens with Styles in Abomination and with Jennifer also in Motel, California. Similarly, in those two episodes, you have them saying they can't hold Derek up any longer. You have them worrying that he's dead. And then as the accompanying text pointed out, there's the moment of putting a hand on his shoulder. It happens in Currents with Styles, where he's being comforting when Derek really needs it. In Motel California, obviously, there's a much more sinister reason behind it. And then you also have very similar overhead shots of them kind of crouched over a passed out Derek while he has collapsed in Alpha Pact in Styles' case and in Motel California in Jennifer's case. And I just thought the post and those parallels were interesting because there's a lot of discussion about how like, you know, people liked the idea of Styles with Derek and the show pretty resolutely didn't want to go in that direction. But you do see him with not one, but two other Hales yeah. that are women. But it's like the only characters that Styles ever seems to get somewhat set up with, besides Lydia, who was introduced as Styles' crush before he even meets Derek. Outside of Lydia, it's Hales, but girl Hales. <laughs> Our boy's got a type. And this post kind of adds to that by showing that a lot of those moments between Derek and Styles that fans thought were kind of intimate are depicted as intimate when they happen with Jennifer. Yeah. That's very interesting. I did not realize all of that stuff. Once you put it like all side by side, there's some things I definitely noticed, like the word vomit. <laughs> I got like strong styles vibes there. Mm -hmm. And obviously like the par parking lot. Yeah, that was the part that I noticed was the collapsing in front of their car. Like that's a very clear, yeah. specific image. So, Will, with your experience from the writer's room, do you think, like, any of it was, like, a conscious, like, parallel of previous events, even if it wasn't meant to be, like, romantic, but just, like, some previous events, or is it just, like, coincidental? You know, it's funny you ask. It was not. It was just coincidence. It was just, <laughs> yeah. I prefer I the theory, the, the, the third option, which is unconscious writer. I was going to say that. Yeah, it yeah. is unconscious writer. You know, we were unconsciously doing meet cutes with Derek and Styles all the time, you know? And then if one of them had been a woman, they would have dated like for every season. But unfortunately that didn't happen. Yeah, and I, and I don't think that was, you know, when I say this stuff, I, I never say it from a perspective of like, I thought it was intentional mm -hmm. or anything of that nature. I think it's just 
as consumers of popular culture, we're so trained that like an attractive man and an attractive woman within a certain radius of one another must be in want of having the sex with each other. Yeah. And that the same very broad logic doesn't apply to two people of the same gender. I don't think that's an intentional misdirection or anything like that. I think it's just how we are trained to think when approaching stories. And the beauty of fandom is that you really get access to a multiplicity of perspectives. And even if all these mainstream media products intentionally or unintentionally kind of follow this those same patterns fanfic is really committed to taking those stories and being like but we're going to disrupt those patterns yeah and it's going to be very intentional when we do it tv we're talking about tv in this it's tv you need to be you need to be open to that where it's like i mean if characters have chemistry then be like well let's let's lean in and see what happens and kiss and kiss <laughs> and all that but you're absolutely right we're we are conditioned to be like man woman they look kind of hot together dating now in story and it's like oh it should just be these two characters are good together like it's clear that there's chemistry in this and that it's like well just do it you know if the actors are willing go for it you know just just do it if it doesn't work it doesn't work that's fine but you know take big swings see what happens all right, guys, I love at the end when Scott and Styles are walking into camera at the very end of the montage, because uh, it's like they're walking into season 3B, and we are royally going to f*** Styles up. Yep. And I feel like there's a little bit of a hint to that. In that shot, it looks like Styles is smiling just for Scott's benefit. Once Scott looks away, he looks more serious, like his smile oh. dims. Yeah, that is really interesting. I didn't notice that until you said it, and then I went back and rewatched the end of that montage, and you're absolutely right. Right, he looks a bit grim doesn't he? Yeah. He does have the darkness in his heart and possibly, yeah, already the Nagitsune has warmed its way into him, but he wants to keep up this charade of being happy for Scott's benefit because, you know, Scott needs it. And it's such great subtext to Scott's voiceover narration Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. he's the one saying, you know, we all feel it, but I lean on my friends. Yeah. And even though he doesn't comment on what that means for Styles, we see it a little bit on screen that Styles knows that Scott needs to lean on him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even though he's feeling those same things, possibly more with regard to the Nogitsune, he is going to put up a front. And we have seen in previous seasons that that is something he's really good at doing. I mean, mm-hmm. even in the first two seasons, Styles is relatively happy-go-lucky most of the time. But we do see in Party Guest, when he is dosed with Wolfsbane, the hallucination that he has is his father blaming him for his mother's death. So that's an aspect of Styles that we've been allowed to see just kind of in the last season or so. And we see that kind of intensifying here, that what he's experiencing is getting progressively darker, but he's trying not to let that show in how he carries himself. It's good, subtle character work. But you know what's not good? Do Kayleen's ability to rip out throats. <laughs> we didn't Is know he even yet. Trying? <laughs> yes. 
we, we didn't know that yet, but uh, Brayden survives being slashed from the first episode of this half of the season, and Jennifer survives being slashed in this final episode. He has a really hard time killing people. Is this why all the other alphas had to kill their packs? Because he actually could do it. <laughs> you, you he has performance anxiety, He couldn't okay? get those claws up. Like, so. we know he killed his second presumably that guy's not just roaming around somewhere just with like some scars he's just got he a sore throat be. we don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point i didn't actually ever think about that but that's real funny <laughs> he has he has now failed twice to rip out a throat effectively how hard yeah. is it my dude speaking of jennifer's ultimate death not technically caused by deucalion it surprised me that Jennifer says, of course it's you to Peter and talks about how everyone else suffers, but he somehow ends up on top. But does she even know Peter? Do we ever get to anything to suggest that she has any sort of interaction with him or knowledge of him? No. I don't think so. I don't think there is. I thought that was strange too, because it's like, she's like, of course it's you. And I'm like, do y'all know each other or what? Because <laughs> I had a theory. What if Jennifer was in that hospital convalescing with Peter? And when she finally got enough power, she took the visage of the nurse. And that's how she walked around. And she actually helped Peter with his plan in season one with the understanding that he would then help her with her plan when it finally came to fruition. That, of course, makes no sense. But her reaction to him at the end, at the end of this episode, doesn't make any sense. Because... So I have a theory. Because... Oh. My entire life is just Peter theories. I love it. My theory is they were, and I know I've done this before with Peter was actually working with Kate. Peter was working with Jennifer and her over. It's my theory. I'd be down with that. So as we were saying, nothing makes sense about what Peter's doing this season. What if he was working with Jennifer and he's the one giving her knowledge of like, okay, Kali's here with, we know she's still coming. She's going to be attacking Derek. Here's where you can find her. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't know how she knows that it's just like a thing she yeah she just reasons. shows up yeah and maybe he was the one that like you need to make Cora sick and then because he's the one who then convinces Derek to drain his use his alpha power to heal her he implants the idea but then tries to talk Derek out of it which he knows once he gives Derek the idea he'd never back down from it he knows who Derek is mm -hmm. once Derek knows there's any possibility of healing Cora he's going to go through with it yeah. Plus Derek has a death wish. He Plus does. Derek has a death wish. So we don't really get any benefit from Jennifer with Cora being poisoned. As Kate pointed out earlier, she kind of just disappears once Cora's been poisoned. And then she comes back and is like, Derek, I need your help, even though she didn't end up helping him save Cora. So I just wonder if like she did it because Peter told her to do it. And he's like, you know, I'll help you out here if you make Cora sick so that Derek has to help her. Yeah. We know that Harris was working with her and it seemed weird that she'd kill him when there's plenty of other options and she didn't need to. Like she had someone who was helping her there unless maybe there was multiple people helping her and Peter was the other person. Yeah. And so she still had him to help her with her shady going on. Yeah. Because I didn't think about this until recently. And I'd kind of like to go through the season again and see if like some of the stuff that just really doesn't make sense could perhaps make more sense. If like Peter guiding her, mm -hmm. pretending to help her would help this storyline like connect. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely be interesting because, you yeah. know, it, it would give Peter something to do. He's just kind of hovering 
you know, yeah, he, he just like covers the season. Yeah, he's your villain just, retirement is really getting to you. You need to get up off your ass and do some shit. Yeah, right? so that I think that would be a lot of fun. Plus, it'd be interesting in conjunction with the Peter and Kate theory if it's like what Peter took from that experience was not don't be a shitty person who plots against their own pack. It was when you're a shitty person who plots against their own pack, make sure you stab your co-conspirator in the back before First. they can stab you in the back. Yes, exactly. Because I just feel like the way she says it is so vicious and personal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just seem like, ugh, I've heard about you. Like I've heard about coach talking about the bigger they are <laughs> thing. Because like, like, it seems very personal about, of course, you of course win. You're you. going to like come out on top of this, even though you shouldn't. Yeah. I feel like almost another sense of betrayal like she didn't go into it with her heart like maybe she did with Kali, you know, with our yeah. lesbian theory. But <laughs> yeah, this is happening again. I'm being betrayed yet again. And it's this slime ball that always weasels his way to coming out on top. Yeah. Yeah. And actually from a character perspective, that could work really well because if Peter did come to her and not tell her anything about working with Kate if we go with that theory as well but telling her about how he was burned alive saw his family die and then he had to kill someone innocent in order to accomplish his revenge plot Mm -hmm. she would get that yeah that would resonate with her she'd be like yes okay you get it yeah, I don't like that I have to kill innocent people, but if it's going to save even more people from dying, that's what I'm going to have to do. I have to get rid of these people. They hurt me. They'll hurt other people. If he came at her with a similar version of his own story, that would have really resonated with her. And then for him to turn on her, that's when she would realize that story was not the whole truth. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like Styles realizes in Visionary that he's an unreliable narrator. She would realize, okay, you told me that you had to do this thing and you really didn't want to, but you just knew that someone had to take out these hunters mm-hmm. because they murdered like 11 people in one fell swoop and probably had murdered lots of other people. And so it was revenge, but also for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And then when he comes to kill her or, and prevent her from using the nematon to kind of regenerate, that is when she would realize what Styles had already realized, that he's an unreliable narrator and his version of his own story is at least in part bullshit. Yeah. If he worked with both Kate and Jennifer, that would mean both times he set up Derek to be used for pretty much no reason. Yeah. Yeah. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout out. Have a great week and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.